Podcast New York. People engage to stop a jewel in decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Who popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week I will be representing the 70s with the first week of December 1976. Alongside these other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for, First off, and back to the 90s, say hello to Man Crush. Yeah, I haven't had the 90s in, it's been a while, I think, maybe, I don't know. But this week, I have December 1st through 7th, 1996. This is two weeks after I met my wife for the first time. Pretty big deal. So we'll see what I get. <laughs> also joining us on the panel this week, please welcome back to the 80s, Joe Finley. This is an important week. This is the week of my birth, ladies and gentlemen. December 6th, 1986, I turned five years old and changed the world by not being four anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. You will know this week's celebrity guest judge from films such as Donnie Darko, Gone in 60 Seconds, and May. Now, you can see him alongside C. Thomas Howell in the new movie, Beast Mode. All rise and welcome Judge James Duvall. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. All great decades, by the way, so I'm extremely excited to get down to business with you all. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judge's coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories, movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. All right, duelers. Stock up on some gin and juice and some Lakini's juice. It's time for more. Julian Decades. <laughs> that was a good one. All right, let's toss it right down to James Duvall for the coin toss. All right, gentlemen, I have a five shilling piece here. Go heads or tails. Joe, you call it. All right. I doth choose tails. Tails. Tails it is, gentlemen. All oh. right, Joe Finley, you win the coin toss and you take control of the board. What category are we going with first? All right. Well, I think I'm going to do something uh, not usually done here. And I think I'm going to start off with the movies. Whoa. And when I'm finished talking about it, you'll understand why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first week of December 1986 was not a hefty week for uh, film releases, uh, but I did come across one and it's just a fun one. And uh, the director and his style is just a fun style. And I want to talk about December 4th, 1986, the release of a movie called Ninja Destroyer by director Godfrey Ho. Now, Godfrey Ho is a Hong Kong director who had a interesting style of cut and paste uh, filmmaking. So what he does, he shoots 
one movie a ton of footage. He usually brings in a couple of Caucasian actors just for the purposes of exporting and stuff like that. He films his movie, and then he goes on a stock footage hunt through um, Hong Kong and Philippines uh, martial arts movies where he finds incomplete movies and just buys the footage, takes the footage from those movies, takes the footage he shot, glues them all together to make it look like a story, and then just dubs over everybody to make it the story he wants it to be. He has made, well, in a 16-year period... um. Yeah, 1977 to 1993, he made 142 movies. Half of those movies have the word ninja in it. He is... That's not a lie, too. You have to go... Like, you go through. It is insane. Uh, Watching these movies, uh, they're all in that kind of cult status. They don't even get the status of being a B movie. They're called Z movies. I'm even saying Z just to, you know, ingratiate myself to my American friends here. I'm not zetting it up. Uh, and, <laughs> and it just, it flows better. What, what can I say? Uh, but it's, it's such an interesting uh, style and it's these crazy movies. I do highly recommend you go and find yourself one. Guess what? It's on YouTube. You don't have to go far. And guess what? Nobody's taking it down. So December 4th, Ninja Destroyer <laughs> by Godfrey Ho. Go check it out. All right, Man Crush. What do you have for the movies round? Oh, man. Let's see. Where, where do I go? December 6th, 1996. Here's a movie that I went to with my cousin that winter. I remember this. He was home from school. And I don't know why, but that was the last time I watched this movie until I popped the DVE in the other night. Uh, This movie came out during that whole peak where uh, you had all the disaster movies that came out. So you had Twister, Volcano, Dante's Peak. Obviously, we could throw Independence Day in there. I think that would count. Uh, And countless other disaster movies all the way up to the end of the decade. This one, it was a disaster on a smaller scale. But a freaky disaster, nonetheless. Something that could definitely happen. And uh, I picked Earthquake a few weeks ago when I had the 70s. So I have to ask. It seems like this happens every 20 years or so. Do you guys think that we're going to get another run of disaster movies? Or do you think this whole COVID thing is uh, going to put the the kibosh on that? Well, they, they are set to uh, do the remake of The Stand starts like next week. So Yeah, it's, it opens. It releases. Yeah. Peter Dinklage is starring in the Toxic Avenger remake. That's right. I just heard about that, too. So maybe it's going to be like a new wave of disaster films. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if it's going to be in the movies or if it's going to like be like Asian Hornet Month in Washington for us. <laughs> what yeah, for? not for real. Not for real. I mean, just like, you know, actual Hornets, you know, you got the meteor strikes. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. <laughs> the disaster movies may just be documentaries this year. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's true. That's what they're true. turning that's... into, certainly. You're like, the stand, <laughs> what, the Captain Trips disease? Oh, you know, that's nothing compared to COVID when, actually, I mean, in reality, I would never want Captain Trips. This is way better than the Captain Trips. <laughs> oh, we got the Captain Trips. <laughs> so we might get them again. We might get them again. I think so. Yeah. In this case, so this one, it, this is an underrated film i'd say by rob cohen i think it's a classic uh did pretty well at the box office took in nearly 160 million dollars worldwide which is roughly 270 million in 2020 but the weird thing here is it did way better overseas than it did in the states it made a mere 33 million dollars in the u.s which is crazy when you hear what this movie is uh the movie itself it's loosely based around an event that actually took place in 1949 
when a hazardous material truck had caught fire inside the Holland Tunnel. Uh, clearly, it sounds like a movie that's made for Nicolas Cage. <laughs> At least that's what Rob Cohen wanted. However, the studio said they wanted somebody bigger. They wanted a bigger, larger-than-life action hero. And they went after Sylvester Stallone. But Sylvester Stallone, he was afraid of water. Well, he didn't like water, and he was afraid of tight spaces. Uh, so he initially balked. But, I mean, that's nothing that $17.5 million couldn't cure. So he was all in. So if you're in the movie for an epic disaster movie with me, like Vigo Mortensen getting crushed like a boss, the best death scene ever, Amy Brenneman fighting electricity with her shoes, Stallone saving the day. This made me laugh when I was watching the movie because all they talk about is like this terrorism in service that he was part of in 1994 that automatically made him the best guy to be there as a civilian. He's a taxi driver just getting let wherever he wants to go. He can go. Uh, amazing practical effects for 1996 because they mixed in CGI in just the right way. And it's a reason to never drive in a tunnel again. <laughs> I give you 1996's Daylight. Good flick. Remember that movie? Clearly. It came out right Solid. after Independence Day. Yep. Yep. All right, guys. So for my movie selection, we're going to go back to 1976. Mm, and, you know, good. we often talk about on this show how we have a regional release dates. That movies open in one part of the country. They're still not available in the other part of the country. So I missed some great movies just by a week or two. We had Silver Streak on one end, and I had Rocky on the other end. Still opening, but the premiere dates didn't match up with my week. So we're going to go to a made-for-TV movie. And oddly enough, Man Crush, this is a disaster film much like yours, but on the smaller scale. The most awesome car accident ever filmed. A world premiere, 15 lives bound forever in one shattering second. Harriet Nielsen, Buddy Epstein, Robert Conrad, and Sue Lyons star in the ABC Friday night movie Smash Up on Interstate 5. <laughs> that could be the prequel to Daylight. It really could. <laughs> yeah. What happens is you have a giant 39-car pileup, like 15 people die, 62 people are injured. What the movie does is it takes you back 48 hours from before the crash so you can, you know, get to know the backstories of all the people that die and have their lives forever changed. So you had Al and Julie Pearson, uh, you know, they're setting out going to a beach resort to try to get away and forget that, you know, his wife June is suffering from a terminal disease. The character of Erica, you know, she's troubled by a gang of bikers. Those bikers just won't leave her alone. And uh, Lee Bassett becomes a murder suspect when he is forced to pick up a young couple on the run. And then, of course, there's the nurse, Lauren. You know, she's struggling with those feelings for Sam, and uh, she has some doubts about marrying him. So you can go check it out. It's the ABC Friday night movie Smash Up on Interstate 5, debuting December 3rd, 1976. Man. So let's toss it down to James Duvall for the ruling on the movies round. This is a tough one. Those are all like incredible, actually. You know, I have a really soft spot for disaster movies, not not just because of Independence Day. Um, I also have a spot, soft spot, believe it or not, for the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which I remember particularly well. Um, I'm going to have to see Smash Up on Interstate 5. <laughs> I don't have to see, and I haven't seen... 
I've only seen Daylight. I haven't seen the Ninja Destroyer, but I might have to give this round to the Ninja Destroyer only because I watched a lot of those ninja movies in the 80s, like Enter the Ninja and Ninja 3, The Domination. And Rebe- yes, it's a great movie. You know, all the Chokasugi ones. And I was like really into those ninja ones. And they're really cheap. <laughs> like, really, like, Remember the aerobics scene? Like she goes from being an aerobics instructor. I was trying to figure out how that fit into the night, into that, the Ninja 3, The Domination. I'm like, she's not even a ninja. Like, why is it called Ninja 3? And then at the end, and she was a telephone like, line <laughs> woman. <laughs> she had like eight jobs. The only thing the movie was missing was a random breakdancing scene stuffed in the middle. <laughs> and then from there, you know, what I specifically remember is I would watch. That's why I'm surprised I haven't seen that Ninja. I watched everything with Ninja in the title. Nine Deaths of the Ninja, Way of the Ninja. Everything a ninja I could get my hands on, especially at the time because it just went from beta and VHS to just VHS. So you just go to the video store and like go straight to the martial arts section. It's just like anything ninja, all ninja. All day, every day. I really haven't thought about, yeah, I really haven't thought about these ninja movies in decades. So when you you started bringing them up, I'm like, wow. And and again, it's really tough because I love all the disaster movies that, you know, not just because Independence Day, but I remember as a child in the 70s watching Earthquake, watching the Poseidon Adventure, watching the, you know, it was a great one, Meteor. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw Meteor. I just watched uh, Towering Inferno. There's that, uh, that Towering Inferno was probably the most successful one, I think, at the time. But Meteor and Earthquake, they used to show, because Tower Inferno was bigger, so they didn't show it on public television. But once a year, they showed Meteor and they would show Earthquake. So you could actually watch them on television, like movie of the week. Kind of like when they did Superman the movie and then it had like 30 minutes of footage that no one ever saw that wasn't put back <laughs> on the DVD. And you're like, right, right, that's yep. Mandela effects definitely hitting me because I know I saw Superman do something that I've never seen anywhere else. And you're like, yeah, that's called the TV cut. <laughs> and they did. It's like, uh, you know, it's well known. They, they added so much footage to that to fill up time that they used stuff that it was never used before or again after that. Did they do anything like that with because obviously Independence Day is on like TNT and TBS like all the time in the United States. Do they do anything like that? Were there scenes? Because I saw that four times in the movies in 1996. I went. I loved that movie when it first came out. Blew me away. Uh, But when they played it on TNT and TBS and all that stuff, are there scenes in that one that weren't in the theatrical version? I know that I don't know which cut it is. One of them. There is an extended cut that exists on Laserdisc and DVD. And in some of the TV, the televised versions, I don't know. It's been a while, but I know I've heard, I haven't seen it, but I've heard from people that they had some of the stuff that was cut out. Again, probably to fill up the time. But that was footage that exists on the DVD already. Right. You know, like there's a scene they cut out for time when they're driving, you know, Jeff Goldblum and Judd Hirsch, they're driving to Washington, D.C. Then the cut scene, what they did is like, there's like, well, there's no one on the other side of the freeway, so let's drive in on the other side of the freeway. And then they go into Washington, D.C. I'm sorry, oh, that's yeah. the regular yeah. scene. But in the mo- in, in the cut scene, they're driving and it doesn't cut and they're in Washington, D.C. They're driving and then all of a sudden, the other side of the freeway, all these cars are coming straight at them because they're like, not no one's, everyone's leaving town. So as they're driving down the empty lane, Everyone went off on the traffic side and started driving. Oh. Out so they had to, you know, and get off the freeway and then make their way to Washington, D.C. And that got cut. Everything having to do with, like, my younger brother having what was called adrenal cortex syndrome because he was super sick, like, deathly ill in the film. That got cut mm-hmm. as well. 
Yeah, I didn't remember anything like that. Did yeah. Did you think they waited too long for the sequel? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that Will would have done it had it not waited so long. And I think it would have made a huge difference. I was like, I think I I, I forced myself to like it eventually. But it, when I initially saw it, I was like, it just doesn't feel the same. Like, it's, I mean, you know, the, yeah, you know, I, I love those guys. They're some of my favorite filmmakers I've ever worked with. And they're some of the best filmmakers I've ever worked with. Yeah. Um, I was there opening night. It didn't meet my expectations, you know, but it had certainly had things that I liked and I loved. It's indicative of those filmmakers. Like you're going to get something, you know, whenever. Right. It's, it's, it's difficult because I understand the feelings that people have, you know, but it's also, you know, people tend to trash things really hard. That, that takes a lot of work to do. Oh, for oh, sure. I mean, yeah. and, that, and that's the work of literally hundreds of people. And, and not that it's bad work. It's just like, it, it looks good. You just, the story may not be quite have the same kind of impact, I think, or it didn't have, you yeah. know, you were maybe didn't have feel the same way about it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, everybody, they had so much time to develop their own expectation. They wrote a movie in their head and because it wasn't frame for frame, what was in their head, you've ruined their lives somehow. And it's, well, you know, they ridiculous. had an idea for the script for many, many years. And I don't know why. It, I mean, I, I think they just could, they were waiting to get the script right. And by the time they did get a script that they liked that I was in and Will Smith was in, Will didn't want to do it anymore because After Earth just came out. He's like, I already did a father-son movie literally the year before and it didn't really do well. And so he's like, I'm, I'm trying to do other things right now. So I'm going to do suicides. He did Suicide Squad instead of Independence Day too. You know, and that's as an actor's choice. Like, you know, he wants to do something completely different from So it's understandable and respectful. Yep. I don't think... I think he would have done it more apt to do it had he had happened before after earth. Yeah. God, that would have been amazing. Cause you know what though? Like the expectations were so built up for me, at least from the first one to the next one that it would have really had to be close. Well, I think, you know, I also think, you know, Will Smith, I mean, there's so many great actors in it from Bill Smith, you know, Bill Pullman to Jeff Goldblum and Margaret. Oh yeah. That cast is incredible. Judd Hirsch and Harvey Firestein. And I could go on. Margaret Collins and Vivica Fox. Like, I love them. And they're incredible. Some of those, you know, but when it really comes to that, you know, when some of those actors came back, I mean, to make a sequel of Independence Day without Will Smith is a difficult thing to do, I think. I just think it's a difficult yep. thing to do. And I commend them for still, you know, making the movie. But really what changed that movie is when that script got completely rewritten and they killed Will Smith off screen when he decided not to come back. And that is the movie that we ended up with. But that wasn't their original vision, in all honesty. That was a vision of, like, trying to get, you know, and I could be wrong. I haven't spoken to them in a series of years now. But it seems to me, it appears to me, that that's the movie that the studio pushed them to make. And I won't say it doesn't have his fingerprints. I mean, there's actually some great sequences. Like, I love all the moon stuff. That's definitely Roland Emmerich, 100%. Mm-hmm. That is not the studio. You know, everything with the moon base and, you know, Chin Han's yeah. character, the father of one of the pilots. But all that moon stuff was awesome. I loved all mm-hmm. the moon stuff. I thought it was awesome. If yeah. they would have added a ninja... It would have been. Yes. It, it probably would have been uneven. Keto, a, ni- a ninja destroyer, perhaps. Don't yeah, ninja footage. destroyer would have made it. Don't better. forget the stock footage from movie. <laughs> See, and I'm not, you know, that's in a weird way what got me to also choose the ninja destroyer. <laughs> I'm not lying. I mean, the guts to make a movie and just buy it. Like, oh, just throw these guys. It's like classic distribution. You know what I mean? And it's just like being a really good businessman, even yep. for 
to destroy her. <laughs> I'm going to go look for that tonight because that actually sounds amazing. I have to watch this. I can't believe after the story I told you, honestly, that I've never heard of Ninja Destroyer. Like, I have to find this thing. Yeah. He also made another one called Ninja Terminator, which was another fantastic one. And uh, it was another one of it was the longest title. I don't remember. And it was like something amazing. Ninja kids. Wow. <laughs> there was, you know, the 70s and 80s and 90s all like and then still happening now. But from what I remember, those decades had some really like insanely awesome original movies come out. You know, we had everything from Piranha. You know? oh, yes, Piranha was great. Oh, it was amazing. Gator. Gator, that's another one. You know, of course, the, you know, the, the 80s gave us all the classics, you know, which is interesting because a lot of those classics stemmed, again, from the 70s, like Star Wars and the Halloween. That all launched into the Star Wars of the 80s and the fog and all these other kind of carpenter hormones escaped from New York and the thing. And like, it just blew out in the eighties, but yeah. it was, it was started in the seventies too. So it's, it's no doubt, you know, mainly because I grew up and I have a really have a soft spot for your exact three decades. And it, and it's not that I don't Good. like the 2000s, 2010s. <laughs> yeah, I do, but not the way I like those three yeah. decades. Gentlemen. I think you're in the same, you're in the same page with all of us. I feel like I'm in wonderful company. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right, Joe Finley, you won the coin toss and you destroyed the first round and you take control of the board. Where are you going, man? All right. I am going to hop on. Let's go with TV. Already. I'm going to go with TV. And you brought us a made for TV movie. Now it's my turn to bring a made for TV movie. <laughs> on December 7th, 1986, I give you Anastasia, the mysteries of Anna on CBS. Uh, it is about the woman who claimed to be the last surviving child of the Romanov dynasty, Anastasia Romanov. Uh, it actually follows her time. This is based on, uh, loosely based on the uh, real woman's true story as well as uh, the book, The Mysteries of Anna Anderson, uh, that chronicled all this. But the movie begins with uh, Anna in a Berlin mental institution making crazy claims about her identity and all these different things. And then she eventually gets, uh, gets out of the mental institution. She has to escape the Bolsheviks, people trying to, uh, assassinate her for her claims about her, uh, claim to the czar's fortunes and all these other things. And, uh, leads to a legal battle where she actually, uh, sues to be recognized as a Romanov. And they never actually confirmed that never in real life. They never confirmed whether or not this person was telling the truth, but everybody involved denies it. Uh, the movie starred Amy Irving, Olivia de Havilland, Susan Lucci. It was the final uh, movie yeah. for Rex Harrison, who passed away shortly after. But what's most interesting, this is the first film of Christian Bale. Wow, super young. And just an interesting little thing about this. So Amy Irving worked closely with Christian Bale during the movie, uh, thought so highly of him that she went and told her husband about him, and then he decided to cast him as the lead in his next movie. That husband, Steven Spielberg, that movie Empire of the Sun. I remember that very well. That's what I first remember him from. I don't know the movie that, that he was from the Amy Irving movie. I remember the yeah. first Amy movie, Irving movie I saw was Yentl. Yeah. yeah. Yep. My dad would take me to see everything from Star Wars to Terms of Endearment and Yentl, and I'd just be like, why did you take me to watch Terms of Endearment? I'm nine years old. You adults are screwed up in the house. Like, you adults are not okay. That's all I can think of. Like, everyone's cheating on everyone. I'm like, oh, my God, what's wrong with everybody? Did they take you to go see Lorenzo's Oil, too? 
<laughs> all I can remember is I, I got getting out of terms of doom like I never want to go up in my life I don't want that to be forever I don't want to pay taxes I don't want to be cheap I don't want it <laughs> dude your parents were just like mine they let me watch whatever the hell I wanted whatever it's crazy you know so I was born in 72 so I remember going to watch marathon man driving with my dad when I was like barely like three or whatever and I just remember it used to bug me that he would take me to movies when I was that young. So I remember, you know, all the way up into 79, I remember seeing the trailer for Alien on the big screen in my car. And I was like hiding behind the backseat of the <laughs> station wagon. Like, why? <laughs> I'm like, you're like, you're, you're, there's nowhere for your son to hide. <laughs> all I can do is like go behind the seat and then just fall. Like, I couldn't stay up past 10 back then, anyways. I was going, Yeah. <laughs> I can't stay up past 10 now. <laughs> I tried to, you know, I remember specifically before we go continue really quick when Carl Sagan's Cosmos first came on. It was 13 mm -hmm. weeks, an episode a week from 10 to 1030. I never made it through a single half hour of that before I passed out. Oh, that'll put anyone to sleep. Yeah, I just could not yeah. stay up as a That's kid. <laughs> ambient. That Carl Sagan tone too. Hello and welcome to Cosmos. Billions <laughs> 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 of bubbles. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the television round? All right, so let's go December 7th, 1996. I didn't, you know what, like we weren't quite close enough to Christmas yet, so I decided not to go with any like holiday offerings that were on television. I'll save that. We got a couple weeks to go before I really deep dive there. Uh, but while flipping through the newspapers, I landed on something that is so 1996 that I had to go slightly outside the box on this one. And a little background, like personally, you know, I first got on the internet in the early nineties. So you would expect that maybe my parents would have been big into computers or something like that. Well, you will see from this pick that that could not be further from the truth uh, <laughs> to this day. My dad is like one of those people who relies on the television talking heads to get his news wow. and nothing else. So if you if the, if he was to turn on the television and tomorrow they said the sky is orange news at 11, my dad would try to convince me that the sky was orange because he'd be like, oh, yeah, well, the guy on the news, <laughs> he, he said the sky is orange. And uh, to this day, uh, my dad still does not go on the Internet to look things up. Uh the only thing that the, he goes on the internet for are quote unquote his games. Well, in 1996, he did the exact same thing, uh, but he had no flipping clue how to get uh, quote unquote online uh, as we like to call it back in 1996. My mother, on the other hand, she had her own computer to get on the internet, but my dad, he would never use it. He had no clue how to. So since my mom was a serial like home shopping club violator, because <laughs> she bought everything that was on that channel. We had so much shit on our, in our house that was from that channel. You'd just be like, dude, what, is this like a storeroom, like showcase for Home Shopping Club and QVC? Man, how she purchased my dad a Philips Magnavox web TV. So it's a little bit out of, outside the box here, but that's what it is. That's right. Now my dad could surf the internet super highway from the couch he can act like he was neuromancer and sit on the couch i i would see him do three things on this thing one he would check his email 
uh, which to this day, I'm sure he's never received a email. <laughs> You're waiting for that message, huh, Pop? <laughs> I got to check my email. There would never be shit in there, like anything. Just sign-ups for, like, card games, and that leads me to number two. He would play his card games on there. Uh, and then three, this is what I remember the most. There was this option, if you were watching something on web TV, where occasionally there would be a pop-up with a notification for more information. And if you were watching TV with my dad in the living room and a commercial came on, I like for anything, let's say the club, remember the, the club, yeah, oh, I know the, the club, club <laughs> the club commercial came on at the bottom right, left-hand corner. It would say for more information, click here. My dad would have to click it no matter what it was. How to click this thing. So, like, you'd spend the next five minutes while this thing connected to the internet via dial-up. Remember the web TV. (laughs) (laughs) Just to see one extra picture of the club. And, like, it would be like, order here. And then we'd miss, like, an entire inning of the Mets game that we were watching. Like, this is what happened (laughs) in my house in 1996. Uh, The MSRP on this sucker was $329, which is roughly $550. In 2020, so we're not talking like it wasn't insanely expensive, but it was decently expensive, and it was twenty dollars a month for the service. Wow! Uh, but here we have it. It's the Web TV that I'm bringing to the TV round by Philips Magnavox, well ahead of its time, and enough for uh, for my dad to ruin television for everybody that was watching in the living room. So there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Still has not gotten an email to this day. I'll send him one. My handle on web TV was at Lord Mall. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So for my television pick, we're going to go back to December 4th, 1976. And you talk about something man crush that's definitely 96. Well, my pick is definitely 76. It is something that <laughs> encapsulates the 70s. This is a show that I grew up watching reruns of and being absolutely terrified of the show's protagonist. Now, this is a show where the acting is just about as bad as the special effects. And unfortunately, on December 4th, 1976, we got the final and last episode of Land of the Lost, entitled Medicine Man, season three, episode 13. It's where the marshals get caught in the middle of a war between an Indian and a a soldier. They never explain how this happens. Holly's cooking a pot of water, and then she turns her back, and it disappears. So they have to figure out where this pot of water went. Well, it was stolen by Lone Wolf, who is a Native American, who him and uh, Captain Elmo Diggs, who is the uh, Army General chasing Lone Wolf, somehow find their way to the Land of the Lost, and they meet up with the marshals, and, uh, you know, hilarity ensues with Land of the Lost. Nothing is ever explained in this show. Uh, this was the final episode of this show, and it was not even supposed to be this, the finale. They never explain what happens to the family, and do they ever get home? No, they don't. You know, it was explained at one point in the show that they did make it back to their own world, but at the same time, their clones went back to the land of the lost. So it's kind of a never-ending circle. But season three, episode 13, where the, the Indian and the soldier... They ride off into the sunset of the jungle, trying to find their way out of the land of the lost. We never know what happens to them either. So that's what I got for my television pick. The end of the awesome TV series by Sid and Marty Croft, The Land of the Lost. 
Land of the Lost. Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition from the greatest main something at river ever known. <laughs> it's been a few years, John. But yes, Sid and Marty Croft at their best. Absolutely. I'm really bummed that 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 a lot of that stuff literally just got pulled in at that time because I specifically was one of the hugest fans of that growing up. Let's hear it from James Duvall and his ruling for the television round. Wow. And so again, that's another tough one, you guys, because like when it comes to everything, you know, I have like a special affinity for it. But, you know, I, I think when it comes to the judging, which you really never know how you're going to do, you kind of just rely on the things that you really responded the most to about. And the land of the loss for me was like mind blowing just now. I didn't expect that. I got to say um all i could come you know i couldn't i can't stop thinking in my head about as you were saying with the equally bad effects it was still the sleeve stacks were scary oh, they were and if you went into the caverns where the sleeve stacks were because you were going to try to use that little glass jewel thing that will send you open the doors yes. to other dimensions yep that was awesome and all i could see was that the entire time you're telling me about it and everything you know the opening theme and the song and the, Awesome. All right. Well, I pick up a point in the final one point round and I get to select the next category. All right, guys, let's let's do some hot products. All right. So for my hot product, I went over to the Gazette in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, December 5th, 1976. And I found an article here. It says toys, copy superstars from the Associated Press. Realism best describes the trend in the new toys for this Christmas, according to David Miller, president of Toy Manufacturers of America. This includes playthings inspired by popular media figures, especially TV heroes and heroines. The article goes on to say, Toys and games based on newsmaking events and contemporary themes include a model kit of ocean explorer Jacques Cousteau. Then they go on to list some other popular toys that are coming out for this holiday season. Now, the one that caught my eye has a big, nice photographic ad on it for The Fawns Cycle by Empire. This is a ride-along, I guess you could call it a tricycle, but it's more like a motorcycle with permanent training wheels. And, of course, it is themed of The Fawns from Happy Days. Now, the best part of this ad is it shows the bike, and then up in the corner, it's got a picture of the Fonz giving the thumbs up, and it says, hey, sit on it. (laughs) Right above the bike seat. In Ralph. (laughs) So the ad does say that it is for boys and girls, has safety-styled handlebar, road hugger suspension, and motor-like sounds. The Fonz, a character from Happy Days TV show, has become a popular item with children and toy makers. Fonzie designs are seen on many clothing and toy items, including the Fawn Cycle by Empire. The cycle is made of molded polythene with bright colors and decorations. Children's ages 4 through 10 will enjoy its pedal drive wheel and stability. Pick one up today, the Fawn Cycle by Empire. Hey, sit on it. All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the hot products round? All right. December 1st in the Chicago Tribune, a full page ad comes out. Don't buy another toy this Christmas. We all know the story. 
same video games that uh, sparked months of pleading and bribing more often than not end up as dusty remnants in some back closet. <laughs> well, not this year because we're introducing a real competitor for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Sega finally breaks into North America with a with their own system, the Sega Master System is out, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it is actually a third-generation Sega console. The SG-1000 uh, was released in Japan, Australia, and uh, New Zealand at the time. I don't know why I said New Zealand, but that's how it was. And uh, it came with, uh, much like the NES, it came with a control pad and with the light gun, and it came with two games, the racing game Hang On, as well as Safari Hunt the Shooter. Uh, it came with a lot of uh, peripherals as well. It didn't come with, but you could get a lot of peripherals for it as well. You could get the 3D glasses, so you can play uh, select titles in 3D. Uh, you could play not only cartridges, but cards uh, in the system. And uh, just some comparisons. So the NES had 2 kilobytes of RAM. The Sega Master System had 64. Now, I mean, like, these are ridiculous numbers just to say out loud in this day and age, but to see, like, that kind of a jump in that kind of power inside the machine was uh, something to be admired. Uh, where it did not uh, come through so well is uh, its NTSC titles. Uh, they didn't come out with so many. A lot of PAL titles, they did really well, uh, especially out east and stuff like that, but they just never were able to topple Nintendo. They crushed Atari, the 7800. Uh, they had no problem with that, but couldn't take over the NES, which just already had a stranglehold on the market. Uh, but that didn't stop Sega. They used that uh, hardware, and they actually developed that hardware into the Sega Game Gear a few years later and used what they learned from the system to develop the Sega Mega Drive, which became the Sega Genesis. But for this year, hot and in time for Christmas, and I actually did get that. Uh, not, I think I got it for this Christmas. I, I know I got it when it was fairly new. Uh, it was a wonderful little gift, and that was the Sega Master System beginning the console wars a little bit. I want my. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the hot products round? Let's go to December 3rd of 1996. Like, I felt like this product here, it was like so dangerously close to Christmas with this release date. Like, it must have been a pretty big deal with people that are like readily had the money in their hand to, to buy this thing. But by 1996, for me, my video games, they were stashed away. I was not one of those people. Uh, this particular game, it was created for the Nintendo 64, which is probably the biggest gift this holiday season. Unlike Joe's, which was kind of like a eh, game system, the Nintendo 64 really took shit over in 1996 for a little while, you know, before PlayStation came up and everything else. I mean, you just had this game. It just came out. The 64 just came out for two months prior to this. So that being said, that this game right here was one of the first titles by LucasArts that came out for the Nintendo 64. And since this is one of the first few titles for the system, the game took roughly two years to create. They started in 1994. And if you, it really dawned on me when I was doing the research for this sucker because when they began the development of this game, the Nintendo 64 wasn't even around to have a prototype. So for the most of this development, they were using a prototype 
of the Nintendo 64 to test a prototype of this game. So that's a pretty big leap of faith for LucasArts to put all of their eggs in this basket. Uh, but it appears it, it paid off. I mean, this was a Star Wars-inspired game that sold roughly 3 million copies by the end of the decade. And it was the third best-selling video game that Christmas, according to Toy Retail Tracking. Um, it's not too bad for a game that came out three weeks prior to the holiday season to be number third. The only games that beat it out, Super Mario 64 and Donkey Kong Country 3, which are both Nintendo 64 titles. So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, but this game here, it's Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. I've never played this before. Complete transparency. I was not a big gamer in 1996. I was going to bars and clubs at this point. So I had to rely on Mike Ranger. Mike Ranger, he's like our video game expert. Huge fan of retro gaming. Always super insightful when it comes to reviewing these games. So I asked Mike Ranger, hey, what do you think of Star Wars Shadows of the Empire? Mike Ranger said, I heard it's good. <laughs> that's, his, <laughs> that's his big insight. So there you have it, people. It's amazing, says Mike Ranger. Star Wars Shadows of the Empire that came out on December 3rd, 1996. It's it's crazy because I got to say, I was playing all those Star Wars games and doing the clubs and bars at the time. <laughs> but I remember it came out and I, I didn't, I don't think I had the Nintendo, so I couldn't play it. But I had played Dark Forces, Dark Forces 2. In 97, they released it. It had a computer version. I remember having that one. Yeah, it was my friend had the computer version, but I had such the old beige basic Mac. I couldn't even play, couldn't <laughs> even play it on there. It was like the old Macs, the beige yep. one. Um, and it was weird. It wasn't until uh, it really the Star Wars game that I was able to play on my computer for the first time was the Jedi Outcast. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, so I guess we know which way I'm going to pick a bit. You know, I'm just a massive Star Wars fan. Here. Ooh, look at that. I didn't even notice. <laughs> Dark sidebar. <laughs> Love it. So uh, I'm going to go with that, but I got to say, you know, you guys is like that. They're both big runners up, you know, especially, you know, I got to say, um, I do love that Fonzie cycle, honorable man. <laughs> hey, sit on this. Hey, sit on it. <laughs> All right, man crush, you tie up the game heading into the first two point round. What category are we going with next? Oh man, what do we got left? We got uh music and, and news. News. Uh we never finish on Every news. Subject. Yeah, we <laughs> we never finish on news. So let's let's go music in the middle. It doesn't matter anyway. It's two point round. Let's see what happens. So let's go uh December third, once again, nineteen ninety six. Here's another one of those albums I got from BMG for like one cent back in nineteen ninety six. Like back in nineteen ninety six. I had just graduated from high school. I was living in my parents' house, and I don't know if I ever talked about this before on the show, but it, like we lived in a small townhouse. The walls were very thin, and I had spent my work money, and I had two awesome things in my bedroom. I had a good computer, and although my stereo was kind of shitty, I bought some badass huge speakers. So basically, anytime I was home in my room, the door was closed, and I was blasting music. And the shit that could be heard throughout the entire house, like, I just give my mom credit because she hardly ever asked me to turn it down. Like, hardly ever. And listening to the to this album again today, I can't imagine what was going through my mother's head while I blasted this. 
<laughs> so this album right here, it was this band's second studio album. Uh, pretty much like the launching point for this band. I wouldn't quite categorize this band as like new metal, thank God. Uh, however, it was a good mix of like uh, pop punk with a rap element to it. And this album, it would go gold in the United States and it would reach number 57 on the Billboard 200. The album would also, it would feature three singles. And they would even give us motherfucking Rob Van Winkle is back to do vocals on the track. Boom. Uh, I've always loved this band. Uh, they didn't take themselves seriously. The music was infectious. Their videos were hysterical. It was like toilet humor, which I love. And they were just plain old fun songs. And the three singles that I'm talking about from this album, uh, I wish I was queer so I can get chicks. Why is everybody always picking on me? And then the breakout track from this album, Fire, Water, Burn. And let's get back to what I was saying before about uh, what my mother must have been thinking when she heard these titles screaming from my bedroom. Okay, here's the song list from this album. Kiss Me Where It Smells Funny. It's a personal favorite of mine. Uh, Lift Your Head Up and Blow Your Brains Out, which has a very, very uh, catchy chorus. Uh, Fire, Water, Burn, of course. Yellow Fever. Uh, I Wish I Was Queer So I Can Get Chicks. Why is everybody always picking on me? And then they had a cover of the Ron, uh, Run DMC, It's Tricky, which is a great cover. Uh, Asleep at the Wheel, another crazy song. Shut Up, Your Only Friends or Make Believe, boom. Uh, going Nowhere Slow, Reflections of Rameau, and there's a hidden track that I remember having this. It was like eight minutes of absolutely nothing, and they start talking at the end. Do you guys know the album that I'm talking about here? Bloodhound Gang, One Fierce Beer Coaster. Oh yeah. I remember them. They're huge that year. It was uh yeah, it was massive. I mean, just like some of the lyrics, if you read them and then you think about my mom listening to lyrics like uh I could tell I'm doing something right by the way that she blushes. She's one <laughs> she's the one that's speechless, but my tongue is tied. She's thinking holy mackerel, and I'm thinking tuna on the side. There must be something wrong with Al Pacino's nose, because the scent of a woman is like rotten tomatoes. I mean, this is what was blasting in my house. Yeah, but your mom was probably too busy trying to get your dad an email. So like she probably didn't even notice. I remember them distinctly. <laughs> Their videos are great. They were hilarious. All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the music round? All right. Well, I had to do a little bit of a reverse engineering because I couldn't find an exact date on the release. So I had to go into the Billboard Hot 100 charts and start counting backwards to land myself in the first week of December. I do not have the specific day of the first week of December. Uh, slowly but surely, this thing, though, it was on the charts for quite a long time, and it made its way all the way up to number seven by March of 87. Uh, this song... The single was written as kind of a parody of those party and attitude songs of the 80s, things like uh, Smoking in the Boys' Room and I Want to Rock. And one of the writers of the song actually commented that the irony seemed to be lost on their own fans. And he said that the only thing that upsets me is we might have reinforced certain values to some people in our audience when our own values were actually totally different. There were tons of guys singing along to this song who were oblivious to the fact that it was a total goof on them. And that song was by the beastie boys. And it was fight for your right to party from license I to remember ill. That. I remember that. It was the fourth single 
off of this album, which actually released a total of seven singles. It's an, one of the iconic Beastie Boys songs of all time. And actually, all the way uh, down in 2013, they made a short movie based on the song where uh, Seth Rogen, Elijah Wood, and Danny McBride played the Beastie Boys. But then the Beastie Boys from the future came, who were played by John C. Riley, Will Ferrell, and Jack Black. And also featured Stanley Tucci, Susan Sarandon, Alicia Silverstone, Steve Buscemi, Adam Scott, Will Arnett, uh, Amy Poehler, Orlando Bloom, across the board. I mean, that's neither here nor there, though. The single was just a gigantic hit for them, really far down their list of singles released, too. And when you look at the singles released, it's a shock knowing how well this song did for them and all that and to see how low it uh, was on the list, but yeah, you got to fight for your right to party, ladies and gentlemen. From the album License to Ill. Yeah. All right, guys. So for my music selection, we're going to go back to December 1st, 1976 for the debut album from a band that was kind of initially shunned by the New York City punk scene, only for a short time later for them to come and rule that punk scene and be a mainstay at CBGB's, where, oddly enough, this band had an apartment across the street from. <laughs> December 1st, 1976, we get the release of the band and the album Blondie. Their first single was X Offender. Originally, it was going to be called Sex Offender, but radio stations weren't too keen to playing a song called Sex Offender on the air, so they retitled it X Offender. But the big standout from that album for me is In the Flesh. Now, the style of early Blondie, it's kind of like your parents' music, but dirtier. You know, it had that 60s doo sound, but with the new wave punk mixed in. Uh, some of Debbie Harry's lyrics are just delightful. Her whole persona and character at the time was completely different than what the punk new wave scene was offering. And a lot of people didn't like it. The fact that she was this heart-stopping bombshell. I think Karen Sullivan from uh, The Guardian said it best when she said, Debbie Harry's Blondie character is a cool, knowing siren whose deadpan's vocals promised heartbreak for anybody who fell for her. So it's the debut of Blondie, December 1st, 1976, with the album Blondie. Guilty. All right. That's like, again, it's, it does a really good... Uh, options but i'm gonna have to go with blondie just i remember when she came out i was a little kid not the first album i remember parallel lines because i was super young in 76 and i remember what i specifically remember is when she came do you know who opened up for her here in like 81 or 82 duran duran opened up wow wow and i never forgot that because i was too young to go see the show but i'm like Oh, I'll get to go see a show like that. I don't think that, you know, I've been to some cool shows, but I've never been to a show that cool. <laughs> you know, like, you know like this Blondie, some weird and British band opened them up. Who for? For like Duran Duran, what's this girls on film and Planet Earth? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I'm, you know, I, I won a game from the Bloodhound gang, by the way, doing one of those trivia games where I had to hum one of their songs and the guy guessed it for me humming it. <laughs> <laughs> i was like i don't know how you know that song oh man that should have given me the round but you, you know who it was actually it was anthony rap really oh, wow. now on star trek he knew exactly what i was humming well i mean he's got an ear so he does which song was it do you remember which song uh, it was i don't remember it? the name of it um can you hum it <laughs> <laughs> it was who let the dogs out <laughs> 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 
He's like, who let the dogs out? I'm like, wow, did you guess that, man? What? That's the Baja men. <laughs> you have no idea what I'm saying. It's like snot's coming out of my nose, you know? Like, how'd you do that? <laughs> he like, bam, had that like hook, line, and sinker, you know, which I expect nothing less from him. Yeah. You know, again, like as you gentlemen said, he's got an ear for music. No doubt. All right, Jimmy. So what's your final verdict on this round? I'm going to have to give it to you, Mark James, Blondie. It's just uh, as much as I love all the other bands, too, but Blondie is just something, yeah, I just love her. Always have loved the band. You know, and all the music was written. I love that she's still with him, that all the music was written by her boyfriend, who's a guitar player and producer. And they also came from, believe it or not, they were hanging out with Andy Warhol. Yeah, they had a a big part. Andy Warhol were part of that old factory scene. So they had that, like added warhol dimension to him that made him super like right, right. lou reed punk rock like velvet underground kind of punk rock but they were nothing like the velvet underground at all no they were nothing like anything where'd you grow up in the yeah. east coast or the west coast i'm from detroit originally but i grew up on the west coast oh, okay um yeah fortunately like for me like very early on i think when it was about three or four like his family would take care of my sister and i because my parents both started working in the late 70s it was like you know, they both had to get, get a job. And this family had seven kids, the youngest being five years older than me, seven years older than me, nine years older than me, 11 years older than me, 13 years older than me. And all of them were way into music. So I still remember going into having a crush on the sisters, Norma and Irma, and sitting in the room while they're playing like, this is the new thing and listening to the rain song by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Not really getting it at the time because I was super young, but loving something about it. And then this nostalgia years later, like even now I'm like during the lockdown, I learned to play the rain song on the guitar. I'm like, I'm going to learn that song. <laughs> <Deep> to me. <laughs> and all I did was grow this stupid mustache. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, so I jump out to a lead here, heading into the final two-point round, which is the news round. All right, so for my news story, we're going to go over to the Boston Globe, December 4th, 1976. You know, we got a rule on this show that we, we don't like to bring the sadness. So, and when you're stuck with the 70s, there's a whole lot of sadness, man. So I looked around, and all of a sudden, an article just catches my eye, and I read this. This is great. In the Boston Globe, it says, Scotland Yard's switchboard was swamped with calls, one caller said. I've just seen a pink UFO. Another said, this large pink thing just flew over my garden. A third person said, it's a flying pig. After a bit, air traffic controllers at Heathrow Airport, one of the world's busiest, they said, had suspended all landings and takeoffs because a large pink pig was floating 700 feet above the airport. They said the pig was 40 feet long. Scotland Yard quickly solved the case. The British rock group, Pink Floyd, was preparing to make a brand new album cover. They found a German firm that could make balloons in any shape. They immediately ordered a 40-foot pink pig. Then they posed it atop a London powerhouse. In front of the pig, a strong wind came up and broke the pig off its moorings. The pig was last seen with speeding across the English Channel. So, of course, this was the uh, setting when they shot the album cover for the album Animals, which would then come out the next month. So, yeah, this is what I got from my news story. Pink Pig from Pink Void on the run over England. (laughs) Awesome. Solid. What was the sadness that you were talking about? Who died? The pig. 
<laughs> so I didn't want to bring any of the sadness. And then I came across this Pink Floyd story, and I'm like, this is absolutely perfect. So that's what I got for the news round. Joe Finley, over to you. All right. Well, my story, uh, usually things around my birthday, we've had a, we've had experience with sadness. I escaped sadness, but I didn't escape scandal. And a White House scandal, it's not just for 2020, folks. 1986 was full of it. Uh, I first saw it in that Chicago Tribune where I found that ad for the Sega Master System. Uh, it was on the front page. And then on the Philadelphia Inquirer, it was on the first seven pages. And for the next six days, it was on the front page over and over again. Uh, this is GOP le- leaders urging President Reagan to come back to Washington and get fully transparent on the Iran Contra scandal. Uh, a lot of things going on here, starting with uh, Bob Dole came out immediately calling on Reagan to put all cards on the table and to uh, allow for a full investigation from a uh, Senate committee as well as special counsel and all of these things. Uh, By December 3rd, it was on the front page that Reagan had ordered that special inquiry and promised full disclosure and full transparency. Uh, December 4th, a vice admiral connected to the scandal pleaded the 5th uh, when being questioned by Congress about it. And then on December 5th, Reagan went from transparent to not so much when he gave his whole cabinet full permission to not show up for any testimony before Senate. Sounds familiar. and then on december 6th uh, it comes out that the sultan of brunei was persuaded as well to donate millions of dollars to the nicaraguan contras and the money was funneled through a swiss bank account in oliver north's name uh so a scandal that obviously lasted way beyond the week but just dominated the front page of print uh during that week a time when to see one's own party call out their party's president uh, to, you know, get some answers. And it was uh, it was an interesting story to read through. I mean, I knew of the scandal, but I have never read that deep into it. And it was uh, an interesting story overall. But that's it. The week, the whole week of December, the Iran-Contra scandal. Doug Lyman, who I work with, the mm-hmm. filmmaker, his father is the prosecuting attorney for that oh. case. Oh, no way. <laughs> so the Iran-Contra scandal... Wasn't about the Middle East bootlegging Konami games. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the cover. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the arms was the cover for that. Actually, and and the truth was, it wasn't George Bush uh, giving pardons. It was them pressing B A B A up down up down left right left right select start. All right, man crush. Why don't you wrap up the news round? All right. So I switched things around here. I went to my tiebreaker. We're going for the win. I'm going for the win here. Let's go. Uh, December 3rd, 1996, a uh, story out of Honolulu. Make this one short. A Hawaiian state court upheld the right of same-sex couples to legally wed on Tuesday. Five years after a gay couple first filed a suit against Hawaii for denying them a marriage license. Uh, the ruling makes Hawaii the first state to recognize that gay and lesbian couples are entitled to the same privileges as heterosexual married couples. And pretty simple. I mean, it's pretty simple to understand. I don't have to go too deeply into that one, but that's what my news story is for the first week of December 1996. 
Wow, you guys, that, this is the toughest one of all. But, you know, based on the politics of it, I'm going to have to go with Man Crush. That's short, sweet, and simple. Uh, the first couple movies I did with were Gregor Rocky, you know, uh, who, you know, he was like, I'm a, I'm a right, gay right. filmmaker, you know, at a time when people weren't open about that kind of stuff. And at the time, people started to accept his movies and, ex you know, stop putting labels on things. And, you know, being so young and impressionable, it meant a lot to me to be a part of that. And so I don't think we had anything to do with that. But I do think it's great to be a part of something where things were moving in a direction of tolerance and acceptance for other people, for other human beings, because it's insane to me. You know, I won't get too heavy and poignant, but that we mistreat other people. It's insane to me. I don't right, understand just, it. It's just not the world. You I do you. It's, uh -huh. it's insane. Yeah. I remember the first time explaining to my daughter, you know, it's like, you got to understand there are people who treat people badly because of the color of their skin or because, you know, it's a man who loves a man. And she just looked at me and she's like, but why? And I just kind of held her. I'm like, oh, there's some hope yes. <laughs> because isn't that, isn't that the simplest thing? But why? That doesn't make sense. You're right. Yeah, it's no different than when you're growing up and your friend's like, I like only blonde. I like redheads. <laughs> I like men. I like men and women. You know, it's like, it's the same thing to me. It right. always has been. All we have is us. Take care of each other, people. Yeah. That's all we have. Be good to ourselves. <laughs> be good to each other. If you're good to yourself, you'll be good to others. All right, man, no crush. You know what that means? Your little strategy paid off. And we're going to go into a head to head in the wild card round. Me versus you. Hey, sit on it. <laughs> He's bringing that one back <laughs> for a Hail Mary. I guess for my wild card round, I'm going to go over to another hot product that I didn't pick because I wanted to go with the Fonzie bike. But this one, I found an ad in the Los Angeles Times, December 3rd, 1976. I'd like to say this is a full page ad, but it's like an 80% page ad. There's like a little paragraph <laughs> carried over. There was a sale. <laughs> it says, how to give them their own game show, Christmas Day and every day of the year. Our TV action games give you four games in one, in the thrills of an excitement of an amusement park centered in your own den. Play by yourself or challenge your friends. Both units easily hook up to your television and feature automatic on-screen scoring. Now this ad features two products, and they're basically both the same thing. First one has the Enterprex Apollo 2001. It has two-speed controls for fast and slow play and pro and amateur bat sizes. Two ball angle controls for sharp left and right angles. Now here is the product I'm actually picking. It's the more expensive model at $89.99 as opposed to $69.99. And I don't know if you guys have figured it out what we're talking about yet, but we're talking about Pong. Yeah, I and knew it. I knew oh. you were talking about Pong. Atari <laughs> Super Pong automatically increases the speed of the ball with each volley, has four action games, Pong, Hockey, Handball, and Catch. Plays in black and white and color for $89.99. Both That's FCC a lot of money approved. Back then. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't even buy a bike for that. This is the second installation of Pong. Now, Sears also sold the same thing that Atari did, but the one difference with the Sears model was the controllers were detachable. The Atari model, it was kind of like a base that you just sat down and it had two knobs on the side. So that's what I got for the wild card round. Atari Super Pong, available now, December 3rd, Whoa. 1976.
Man Crush, I saw you giggle when he said two knobs. I thought he was talking about uh, <laughs> masturbating in the basement or something. <laughs> well, you can play by yourself. Yeah, that's, you had me at that. I was like, that's free. That's not even a product. I mean, that game, everybody was obsessed with that when it came out in 76. So I was getting taken care of that family where five steps. So they were all fully into it. And I'm like the little three Tom or four-year-old. the birth like, of video I'm game not. trash talking. Yeah, you know, and then you you definitely don't have the coordination to play it. So you try to do pong at three or four, and you're like, how come it never bounces? I can never get it to bounce off my stick. Why does it move so fast? And you had the paddle. Remember the paddle? Yeah. yeah I couldn't use the, the I couldn't paddle. Use it. I just couldn't. sucked. I couldn't use it at all. It was super That's bizarre so for me. I'm like, would rather go on my bike and go up to the store and buy a candy bar for 25 cents. Yeah, Girl, and this ad. <laughs> You know, it's got the Atari Super Pong, which has the knobs. Now, the other one, the Enterprex Apollo 2001, doesn't have knobs. It just has two sliders up and down. So I can imagine how great that worked. Spend the extra 20 bucks, people. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the wild card round? All right, so I'm going to double dip on news here. We're going to go uh, December 4th, 1996. This is pretty monumental. has some legs to boot, which I like to do on the show. Uh, the one thing that I really dig about the 90s is we get some really cool technology starting to come out. Sure, there's a lot of misses, but they're trying a lot of things. For example, you might not get like the Oculus Quest 2, but... You get the beginning in something like the Nintendo Virtual Boy or something like that. The story is sort of like that. And I completely remember this happening. It was all over the news. However, it's one of those stories where you didn't get the big payoff for another like six months. So you may have forgotten about this one. Like I don't know. Let's see how this goes. But uh, this happened in late 1996. And I give you this story. And uh, the title of the story is Pathfinder Craft Totes Mars Rover. A six-wheeled buggy no bigger than a child's wagon sped towards Mars on Wednesday on a 310-million-mile odyssey to explore the planet's rocky red surface. The Mars Pathfinder, the spacecraft carrying the rover, is scheduled to drop down onto the planet's surface on July 4th, 1997. That's why the big payoff took six months. Uh, where it's going to have a 30-mile-per-hour landing where it will be cushioned by large airbags that will inflate at the last minute. Then the remote control rover named Sojourner will amble out in search of rocks. Okay, This is the first time a mobile craft has been sent to explore another planet. There have been two previous rovers to touch down, but they were tethered to the ship. This is the first time you had one that drove on its own remotely. Uh, NASA hopes that Pathfinder, the second of 10 spacecrafts to be launched to Mars over the next decade, will live up to its name by paving the way for future robotic explorers and proving that cheap little spacecrafts can work. AKA cheap, by the way, it was $196 million <laughs> Uh, which is actually the equivalent of the amount of money they spent on Waterworld. Um, you could buy Pong for everybody in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> keep, in high, keep in mind here, uh, like two weeks prior to this happening, the Russians attempted this exact same thing, and their probe never made it out of the Earth's orbit. So this in itself, just it lifting off and everything else, this is a huge deal. And like I mentioned, they ended up landing Pathfinder on July 4th, and this little sojourner did his job. 
He took pictures. He collected samples. Not only did this little six-wheeled rover make it on land, he ended up lasting 85 days on the Red Planet. He was only designed to last a week. And once again, this was the first ever vehicle to remotely explore another planet completely untethered. So Journer's journey right here, he went (laughs) 330-ish-ish feet. (laughs) That's how far he went in 85 days, 330 feet. Uh, this the whole connection was done via modem back to the ship. So think about that. It, I think it was set at a uh, I think it said ninety six hundred baud, and it couldn't even connect at that. They were connecting at twenty four hundred, and I don't know if I'm speaking Greek to people here, but it was half duplex. So that means it couldn't happen at the same time. So they would send this thing a message, they would get it, and then it would reply back separately, and then they would be like, okay, turn left, and then they have to send this thing to them. So it took like. 10 minutes for it to do stuff. But I mean, I mean, think about that since then the U S has spent, or they sent uh spirit opportunity, curiosity, and they just sent perseverance back in July. And that's scheduled to make a February 18th landing, wow. but this is it. Sojourner, this was the first of its kind. Yeah. But did it have four action yeah. games and on-screen <laughs> scoring? I, it, it actually probably could have carried pong along with it. <laughs> No, but it would have taken forever. Knob <laughs> it's up. amazing because I remember that and I followed that the whole time, actually, because I'm a big, you know, I've always been an astronomy buff since I was a kid, too. Um, gosh, you guys got to make it so hard. You like battle it out, pull out all the great stuff. Um, that's a tough one because I have an affinity for both of them. You know, again, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll have to give Man Crush an honorable mention only because the Pong brings me back to some interesting memories (laughs) the sojourner brings back interesting memories too because believe it or not when that happened i had just done independence day 96 yeah so we not only i roland dean everybody were watching this thing so we were all massive astronomers like fans of astronomy then and now and since we were children um it's incredible to continue to see the the experimentation in the work and the probes they've been able to continue sending there considering it is so far and there is nothing you know there's a delay in everything because it takes right time. and it's so much bigger now like the one that they just sent out the perseverance is like i think it was 2400 pounds or something like that the uh sojourner was like 28 pounds oh wait so, th- so that one went to mark mark got this one with palm yeah yeah good Well, because it was in color and black and white man <laughs> And mine was in red. Wow. I did not expect <laughs> to pull out the not, wind on that one. Yours is, I mean, yours supersedes it in a lot of ways. Yours is also millions and millions of miles back and forth and continued to be <laughs> successful. Um, Pong is known as like the progenitor of all video games for generations. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's Sojourner is like the Pong of Mars. It really is think the Pong it. of Mars. I mean, literally. Literally is the Pong because of they, Mars. Because they always pull it back because like, uh, like the book, The Martian. You know, they they go back and uh, he goes to Pathfinder to use our communication system. And so they always pull this stuff back. So, yeah, it really is kind of like the Pong of Mars. So. It really, well, really is because it's also the first time that we got there that was, you know, and so Pong is very basic. But everything that comes out of, after that is much more advanced and highly technological, and, right. you know, superior. Yeah. And so it's been exactly the same way for that as to, for the Mars probes as well. Yeah. Well, and think about it like this. If an asteroid was coming towards Earth, okay, yeah, we've dug up some rocks and stuff like that on Mars. Okay, that's great. But Pong is 
a how-to of how to repel <laughs> a projectile. That is true. So, that is true. Very slowly. Yes. <laughs> you got it. Quick, get to the knob. <laughs> it's like you, you saw Arecibo, right, in Puerto Rico? It collapsed, the largest radio oh. telescope in the world that we used to yes. track those asteroids with. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Oh, no. It was broken, and it will not be fixed. It's done. No. That's the one that they used in Goldeneye, wasn't yep. it? Yep. With where we're yeah. uh, Pierce Brosnan and Sean Bean fighting to the death up there. That was a great fight. I love that scene. Awesome. But yeah, so great... it's, it's, I mean, it's not the only radio telescope, but it was important. We are going to lose some stuff because of it. You know, we have recently discovered, I can't remember the name of the, there's a term, but tracking the meteorites, you know, and you don't really have to worry ones about the ones unless they pass through a keyhole, which means it'll pass through a hole that brings it back to nail the earth on the second return. Those are the only ones we need to really worry about. The problem with that is predicting these orbits because what we've discovered is, is that their orbits slightly change because of the radiation the meteorite gives off from sunlight. So over time, it's not what the computer says. It gets, it moves a little bit because of radiation. Yeah. Didn't they just miss one that like just buzzed right past us and they only knew about it? Like, A week before it happened. Sometimes it happens a week before. Yeah. Once, once or twice, we saw it right after it passed us. And there was one recently where they thought it was one, but they was traveling too slow, and then they realized uh, that it was a part of a rocket. Yeah, they didn't know what it was that had launched a satellite rocket. Yeah, people were like sixty year old rocket. I'm like, yeah, that's the sixties. That's when we started launching lots of rockets. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Armageddon is not that far fetched. No, no. No, I mean, we're, we're going to have to look at something like that. I mean, honestly, like, if we don't destroy ourselves first, I mean, really, like, you know, there's only a few really big things that can do it. Super volcano explosion, meteorite strike, bullet impact. Um, even the most massive of earthquakes, which we've seen a couple of, you know, and they do cause significant amount of damage, but it's not global. Well, thank God we've been preparing ourselves for the last 40 years with all these disaster films. Yeah. Well, you know, I tell you, we the next movie coming is the Asian Hornet movie, Killer Asian Hornet. I'm I'm employing a ninja destroyer, so I'm going to be it's fine. The, it's the Killer Asian Hornet Ninja Destroyer. <laughs> Have you seen those things? Those things are massive. Oh, they're insane. But yeah. We got to yeah, talk insane. about we got to talk about your movie though before you get out of here. Oh, we got to talk mode. about Beast Mode a little bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> I know you're so caught up in like everything else, but. <laughs> Let's talk about it. It's dude. It's cool. Like, what was it like working with like C. Thomas Howell and all those guys? That, all that stuff was like a dream. It, you know, it's a totally different movie than Independence Day, but it was a similar experience as Independence Day, not in the scope and size of it, but in the talent that was involved. So to work with C. Thomas Howell, who I'd grown, you know, we all grew up, you know, we know him from everything from Pony Boy and the Hitcher, you know, all the way up to oh, even like in the later years where he played you know, Richard Ramirez, the, the Night yep. Stalker. And he's got an extremely prolific career. And, and being a huge fan of the legendary films that we've all been carrying for decades, it's, on one hand, you can't believe you're working with it uh, with him and you're working with these people like Leslie Easterbrook and James Hong. And I didn't have scenes with Ray Wise in this movie, spoiler alert, but I've worked with Ray, Ray before and it's the same thing. It's like, I almost, at this point, I, if, with actors like that, I'll pick a movie because they're involved specifically, and then I'll read the script later. 
just for the oh, opportunity oh, to be with him. Yeah. And the thing was, is I didn't necessarily do that with this. You know, I read the script and then found out that they were, that Tom, CT, CT or Tommy was involved. And then they ended up getting James Hong, James Hong and Leslie Easterbrook. But, you know, so when I got the script, it's such a fun, crazy, crude, you know, over the top ho- comedy horror. And I love that growing up with those. those what could you, what could you tell about it without giving it too much away? It's, it's a crazy movie. Like it's kind of, a kind of like a weekend at Bernie's. It's with definitely monsters. got a weekend at Bernie's thing. I use that as an inspiration <laughs> for me. Certainly, Terry K- K- Kaiser is in, you know, who played Bernie Lomax was literally what I was trying to channel when I was doing the scene with James Hong. Oh, so good. Yeah, and I, and I remember I saw so kind of reminded me of the ridiculous of that. And J- James Hong brings a little bit of a big trouble, a little China element, even yep. though he's not Lopan. You were not put on this earth to think, Mr. Burton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy is, he's so intense. And how does it feel like, like you looked up to see Thomas Howell, but like technically in this movie, he's like your bitch because he's your age. Shooting that stuff is it like, you, you know, when you, it's a good thing, you know, doing it for years and years. So you know how to like just shut off and go into the character and you, and then you really kind of got to do that. It's like, right. at least for the time that the camera's rolling. And then it cuts, and you're like, oh, what did I just do? Did I do? You know what? And he's like, oh, dude, come on. Come on. You know? <laughs> so when you know that the other actor, because some actors really like, not all of them, but some actors really do kind of like play it dramatically and carry it dramatically afterwards and, you know, years later. And that's cool. You know, it's all about fantasy. But, you know, it's nice to be able to have a separation from that as, you know, for me as an actor, because I'm, I like that it's make believe. I'm glad that I'm nothing like Huckle Saxton, you know. Oh yeah, like dude, you're like the complete opposite. Yeah, I'm very Michael yeah, in you're... a lot of ways, in essence, you know. But no Huckle Saxton. <laughs> I mean, I guess if I was to talk about, you know, describe the movie without really giving much of a spoiler, it's kind of just the idea of like uh, what fame can do to people. It's an examination of fame in the in the in the movie industry and how that changes people. And we just happen to have a very, I think. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of not like a, it's a little bit crude, but you know, it's cause and it's over top, over the top, but that's, you know, the, I think the subject more matter we're dealing with in that fame in Hollywood, you know, is it's absurd to begin with, you know, we've heard these stories since we were little kids that have existed right. since we were yep. before they're born. You know, I remember after we did independence day and we went to Mexico and I was sitting with Roland Dean and we passed by this pier and they're like, yeah, they shot night of the iguana here. You know, and there's a, they, you know, so way back when they shoot, like everybody was raging alcoholics. So Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, like didn't like a line they would do. So they would throw it so they could do another take. Problem was every take they got, they got, they, every take they did, they got drunker. So by take 19, they could get through it. And this was a common thing back in the fifties and sixties that people don't know. That is wild. So it's never really, it's not really different in some ways. You know, that has kind of always existed. Uh, Montgomery Cliff, I don't know if you guys are familiar with his background, but wow, what a brutal background that guy had. He was like, never wanted to drink. Then he started drinking scotch and milk. And then he became a raging alcoholic. And then he drove drunk, crashed into a pole and ripped half his face off. Uh, had to have reconstructive surgery in the early 60s, which is not reconstructive surgery like it is now. Was on a bunch right. of painkillers that shut off his organs, gave him pre-cataracts by 38. So, you know, you have like these, these horror stories we hear, they've existed in Hollywood for, for many, many years. That being said, you know, you're not going to really make a fun movie that people want to watch if you take it, tell it the way I just said. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but if you can take that absurdity and, 
It's not that we're making a joke out of it, but we're just showing really kind of how ridiculous it is. And I think yeah. that's really kind of the theme of the movie. So you can have fun, and there's kind of, it does kind of have a poignant message, but we're definitely not banging you over the head with it. You know, it's you just no, meant to have fun and not really think about it. But there is kind of a there is kind of a poignant message at the day, and that's you know, fame is a beast. And this it's available right now, right? Like people because they sent us a screener a little bit ago. Amazon and on demand. I, I don't know. I think it's on a few other streaming channels too. It came out on December first definitely check it out i think it's super cool like even if you just see it so you can see like leslie easterbrook or you know these people that you haven't seen in movies in a while you know like from your youth go check it out for that but the movie is great like i had a good time watching it like going through the movie itself like i said the the whole weekend at bernie's feel i kind of got with it with a horror mix and comedy it's it's good it's definitely something to check out that's uh especially in a year like this one yeah, I mean, you know, that, and that was kind of the nice, the nice thing about it coming out is like, you know, like I said, it, it's, it's got a poignancy, I think, to it, but it's very light. You know, it really is just more a movie about checking out and having a great time and letting loose and laughing. You know, you don't have right. to think about how hard it was that these people <laughs> like their struggle, you know, you can laugh at their struggles. Absolutely. Do you have anything else that's coming out? Um, I do. I just uh, I just got the trailer for it. Uh, it's a pilot I did with Michael Madsen called The Detective, which, believe it or not, I did another pilot with him back in February called All for Nothing, where I play. It's uh, more of a mafia cop drama. I play an undercover cop in the un- seedy underbelly of mafia in Buffalo, New York. Um, nice. I also did this movie that I'm really, really excited about coming soon by this filmmaker called John Sugu. If Gregor Rocky was an independent filmmaker, he's an underground filmmaker. I learned about him from Gregor Rocky doing my first movie with him as a filmmaker that Gregor Rocky loved and looked up to, completely subversive. And, you know, and him and Gregor have very similar uh, sensibilities. But he just did a recent movie that we worked on uh, a couple years ago that's almost finished called Skullfuck. <laughs> very nice. So it's a family film. It's a family film, yeah. But, and it's really, it's, it's, he's talking about, like, that's another way of getting high. Skullfucking is this drug that we take um you know with kind of idea you know again it's again him being subversive having that in the title of a movie you know like i remember my first movie was greg rocky it was called totally effed up f asterisk 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 up he wanted something you could put on a marquee but you couldn't put on a marquee and so john mortuga the year after so my second movie was with john and it was called mod fuck explosion And then I ended up doing a movie with him that I love that no one really saw called Scum Rock back in 2000, like right before I did Donnie Darko. And, you know, so we work together, you know, on occasion, him and his incredible wife, who's also the star and incredible actress of all his films, Amy Davies. And uh, when they called me up for Skullfuck, I jumped at the opportunity to be a part of it and had a blast. How did that call go? Like, oh, do you want to be in this movie Skullfuck? Yeah, I mean, it's literally like when it comes to like, there's a few filmmakers like Greg Araki, John Moritsugu, James Marandino. Um, forgive me, gentlemen, if you're watching this and I forgot your name, but there's a few others as well. Paul Boyd, another one from another movie I just finished called um, I Challenger, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But, um, you know, I, I tend to be able to work with these filmmakers over the years over and over again. So literally, it's I'm not really given much information other than, Hey, I got a new project. You want to be a part of it? And then you're like, yeah. And then you get skull fuck. And you're like, cool. Oh. <laughs> so you don't like really know. Like when I got Doom Generation, I didn't know what it was. Greg just goes, hey, Jimmy, 
what are you doing? You want to go for, out for lunch later? And we would do that. We do this every once in a while. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll go out and get something to eat. And we have so he's also, I have this script. I just want you to look at the character, Jordan. Okay, thanks. And like, that's it. Like, he doesn't say <laughs> what it's about. He doesn't, you know, do I want to do it or not? Like, I have to say, you want to look at this? And then you look at it. And I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, but at some point, don't you have to ask? All right. Well, am I going to be the skull fucker or the skull fucky? <laughs> no, I haven't done that, but I'm glad you asked because I don't know if you gentlemen know about the series we just did on stars that only one season played called now apocalypse. Oh, right. And it's a series stars. I did with him that came out. We didn't get renewed. Cause of course it's like, I'll be honest, like Steven Soderbergh executive produced it. Greg Araki writing and directing it with this other incredible writer. And when I received the 10 episodes, I was like, how the hell can TV going to let you put this out? Like, how, like you guys know we're in the Me Too movement? Like, how do you make a movie <laughs> like this extreme? And it's like, oh, because we're offending everybody. We're equal opportunity offenders. We don't care who you are. We're going to offend you. <laughs> and See, that's so, okay. Yeah, and I so, think you know, that's okay. The same thing. Like, he just said, I want you to be the homeless dude. Like, I'm okay, okay cool. I'm the homeless guy. Go ahead and make the, start doing the negotiations. I read the 10 episodes and, Maybe I'm loosely based on a character from the earlier movies. We don't really explain that, but we do explain that I've been butt raped by space aliens. Oh, nice. And they keep haunting me. They keep haunting me. They won't leave me alone. It's a Travis Walton story. I told them to stop fucking me, but they just won't stop fucking me. Sorry, can I say that? That's the dialogue. I'm like, but they won't stop fucking me. And then I was like, but that's not even the worst part. Oh, God. Six months later, baby's coming. Oh, <laughs> out of where so you're like i already said yes and i'm reading this and that's exactly what you're saying you know maybe why i should but then the fun thing is and to be honest like to have this kind of trust and faith in the director for me when i ended up shoot, i probably would have been nervous about egotistically playing a character like that years ago to be honest this time like i just couldn't stop i couldn't take it serious i just couldn't stop laughing it was very difficult to do because it was super funny you know, because I'm saying this dialogue and playing it so straight. And then after all, how many takes do you have to do? This is insane. like when you when you have to like give birth to aliens. I don't even know how you. How yeah, you did I mean, it how I don't was... think. No, we didn't show that. Uh, <laughs> um, like, how do you just get in the mindset for something like that? Well, is that where the booze kicks way, in? Because it, like, it has a run. All his movies do kind of have. A, they are similar universes. So yeah, being yeah, that, you know, sure. I did my first job with him in 91 and I've probably done five movies and a pilot and a short and a two series with him now. So, uh, he's awesome. Though. He's like in that John Waters type. Yeah, like, very much so. So I know, yeah. you know, I, we have such a great working relationship and collaboration that there really is no, you know, it's more of like, what do you need from me? And then I can deliver it, whether it's a character like, Jordan from Doom Generation or Dark from Nowhere or, you know, the homeless dude from now. Who <laughs> <laughs> gets ass raped by aliens. And, and, and what's, what's amazing, to be honest, is like to be able to have that kind of relationship with someone where you can play anything and you don't feel as, like strange about it. That's the right. kind of people I want to work with. And, that, and that's kind of the mentality. I don't want to have to take myself so seriously, you know, I, to some degree. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, you know, and I, and I respect, you know, most artists and their processes, but, you know, it's like I was saying before, like to some actors who remain nameless, like none of what we do is real. It's all fake. <laughs> I mean, like, right. You can't buy into this stuff because it's, it, it's written by someone else. 
I think I think Ian McKellen put it best on Ricky Gervais extras, you know, when he's like, <laughs> Well, how do I know what to say? Well, the words are written down for me. And how do I know where to stand? Well, if somebody tells me. <laughs> I see you're confused. Uh, here is an example of the day in the life of Ian McKellen. Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Action. David, you shut up, pass, cut. <laughs> I see you're still confused. See, in this play, you'll be playing John. And you must learn all the dialogue. There'll be no scripts. There will be no scripts on the night. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah, that's brilliant. And you know, it, it is funny and is, is like taking the piss out of it. It's like, yeah. that's kind of really the end. That's it at the end yeah. of the day. You know, you're like, you see but, filmmakers but, do this, but it's only here in this frame, in that film yeah. frame, when that it needs to look real. Everything here is irrelevant. But, and it's important too, like you were saying, because I mean, you're, you've got a prolific career, right? I mean, it's, if you take it too seriously for that long, man, how, like, that'll burn your brain out, won't it? It, it? it has. I've, I've gotten close to those moments over the years instead of just letting go and trying to control my career and be like, this is where it needs to go. It's just letting it happen and feeling, you know, and I think, you know, I do feel very grateful and very thankful to still be acting, to get the opportunities that I get. It could have stopped years ago. Um, the last movie that I'm really most proud of coming very soon is called I Challenger. And I play a 40 year old something gamer, uh, who sells marijuana to kids under 21 who can't get it from the dispensary. <laughs> um, Public service. But I got a heart to go. Yeah. I'm looking for, I'm looking for my way. I'm just a guy trying to make his way in the world. Um, but since I've been stuck on games for a while, you know, I've kind of been living is like a, uh, or I've been catfishing people, you know, cause it's all online gaming online. I say that I'm in my twenties, you know, and same thing. Everyone's catfishing each other online. So you guys, you go through the right. film, you kind of discover that no one in the film is actually who they say they are. And once he becomes friends with one of his kids, cause he ends up getting tied up on a, on a Tinder date and she ties him up and leaves him. Oh, <laughs> so he manages to somehow get to call his friend online is, that he's never met before and he comes and believes him and you know and he walks in and he's just like what the hell is this what you, you're an old motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> he's the other one like no 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 i'm sorry i lied i'm sorry just i'm a 40 year old game with no friends and no future sorry if it's like i'm a little depressed about that <laughs> he's all what you need is a little bit of luck you need some luck that's what you need in your life so he convinces me to get Look for luck. So I can, if I have a little luck, my life will change. So I start watching a bunch of YouTube videos and I find these 24 hour self burial, self burial supervised, like 24 hour funerals people are having in Russia where they bury themselves for 24 hours and then they dig themselves up after 24 hours and they have incredible luck. And it is a thing, believe it or not, by the way, oh, I've never heard people of this. have died from too. Oh, so my character decides he's going to do this, but this is how he's going to, this is how he's going to utilize his luck. He's going to live stream this, get a couple cameras in there, dig himself under, have this whole thing. And he begins the journey to do it 24 hours. And so without spoiling it, cause this is really is the setup. His friend buries him in there. He's on the camera, live streaming it, watching it. 50 followers, 500 followers, thousands starts to go crazy. And tune in, folks, because anything can happen. And I'll leave you with this. Anything does. <laughs> it snowballs like, woo, completely unexpected. And so it's a little bit 
different than the movies I've done, but at the same time, it's still that wacky kind of out there genre. Awesome. And I really enjoy that. So that that's the final movie I have coming soon. I challenge and I'm really, really happy about that one. You guys got a release date for that one? We don't. Um, I know he just finished everything. Sound, picture, color. Ed, the edit was done quite a few months ago, but all the post deliverables, every, the movie's completely finished as of a few weeks ago. So it's ready to go. We don't know what's going to happen. We've started entering it in festivals. We entered it into Sundance and a few other festivals. And, you know, we're going to try to take it in the festival circuit if, they'll be, if they're receptive and see where it goes from there. What is that even awesome. like right now with COVID going on? It's going to be all virtual. Um, I think the way oh, what yeah. I was reading about Sundance, they'll make the announcements in the next few weeks. And I'm, I'm assuming most of them will follow this for the at least the first six months or nine months next year. But there'll be, instead of like Salt Lake and Park City screenings, there's going to be virtual. And then there's going to be screenings in like LA, New York, and a couple of other cities around the country. So in LA, it'll be at the Pasadena Rose Bowl outside. That's cool. Yeah. Um, that being said, at least it's warmer here in California than it is in yeah. mountains of salt. Right, but Utah if, if in the winter, I remember like freezing so many years. Like I went a lot in the nineties and every year I was like, why do I keep getting to bring thermals? <laughs> <laughs> if they're going to do them virtual no though, that's, that's not terrible. I, I think you get more eyeballs on it. Yeah. That I bet more people get a chance to you see know, the films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well it is, it, I mean, it's incredible to see. And it really has like, even from the nineties when people didn't know about it, but now like all the movies sell out if, without the quarantine, they sell out. I can't, even, I remember for Donnie Darko, I couldn't even get a ticket for my own movie. I couldn't get into the first screening because yeah. I didn't have a ticket wow. and I'm in it. <laughs> They're like, you're not in this. Well, they you know what they did, <laughs> no, what they did is I showed, I drove from LA 12 hours, showed up to the screening and thought at the, I showed up and they're like, you have a ticket. I'm like, no, but I'm in the movie. And like, sorry, you can't come in. I'm like, but I'm in the movie. And like, well, you can, you know, I'm like, what about the Q and a? I'm like, all right, well come back after the movie's over and I'll let you in. <laughs> You're like, I'm on the poster. Yeah. You're and they're like, like nah. well, they, they didn't really care. I mean, it's not, they, I didn't get into doom generation. Cause I gave my ticket away to somebody. Didn't let me into doom. No generation. way. Really? I've had that. I didn't get into one of my screenings of Doughboy for that. Almost every single year I've wow. gotten, they haven't let me into my own movie there. So I haven't gone, to be honest, I haven't gone back in like 10 years. I, or, yeah, I haven't gone back since 2011, since Greg Rocky had Kaboom. That was the last time I went. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not anti any of the festivals. Of course I would go, but like, there's no reason to go unless, you know, unless they give me a reason to go, I'm not going. Go right. up there and freeze and then not even get into my own movie. <laughs> no, so. I mean, you do press, to be honest. And press is good and it's important, but, you know, and I, and I like doing it, like, especially when it's stuff like this. I love talking to people and I love you guys. Um, but sometimes I can, shy, I can shy away from the press stuff. I'm like, let the work speak for itself. You don't need, the less you know about me, the better. <laughs> right? You know, it's like, well, because then people don't know who you are. I mean, I've always right. thought that. You know, I heard Ray Fine say that. Can you know, uh, back in the 90s actually uh man crush <laughs> and he's they asked him if he would tell him the process and like, no i'm not telling you my process do you ask a musician how he does his tricks an illusionist i'm an illusionist and if i tell you how i do sense. it it's not an illusion anymore and that stuck with me so i do talk about the process i'm not like oh you know what i mean but when it comes to that to stuff like that i'm like let's talk about something else if we can you know because it is it's like and a, 
in a not as eloquent way, I got to say that it's, if I tell you how I do things, it's not going to really work anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, Cause everybody wants to know how you got raped by aliens and you're going to have like alien afterbirth. So, I mean, Nothing. keep that to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh shit. Dude, you got to come back on here again. You're you're really fun to have on. Oh, I would and, love uh, that. I would love that. Dude, I hope you feel better, though. I know you... I missed the beginning when I was rebooting and everything, but uh, yeah, if you're under the weather, I hope uh, everything clears up for you and you feel better, and uh, yeah, for sure, come back on, man. Thank you, man. Good, Good luck you. with all this stuff. I, I would love out. that. I, I appreciate that more than... I appreciate you guys, like, bringing me on and letting me take part in the fun. That was awesome. Oh, like, it's awesome. We, Honestly, I couldn't think of the three other deck. You know, like I said, I know the other decades, but those three decades, like I know, like the back of my hand. I don't know if that's because of our generation. Most likely, I I think about this a lot, and I think like with my parents, it's probably like the you know the fifties, sixties, and maybe the seventies or like the the twenty tens to us, where we're just like, eh. You know, like we're not big into it. So I think every generation has those generation, those decades that they're really, they love and they want to go back and they want to listen to it. And yeah, I mean, like I can tell you, I remember I was in my living room watching TV when it like six months, not even six, maybe it was seven months after December 6, 1976 when Elvis died. I remember when Elvis died. My mom's like, Elvis died. I'm like, what? Wait a minute. I just bought his album. That was the first album I wrote. I mean, he's dead. <laughs> Then it was like, so, I remember well, when John yeah. Lennon got shot in 81. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, why is the guy from the Beatles dead? That's weird. Like, why, why would someone shoot a guy from a band? You know, you know, I was nine years old and 10 years old. What did I know? Right. And, and that's why we do this show, too. And we try not to bring too much of the shit stuff, because, like, that's the stuff that sticks with you. Like, I remember when Kurt Cobain died and walking yeah. outside my house and my my cousin from across the street coming out at the same time going, oh, Kurt Cobain. Died. Like, and I was like, what? That's unbelievable. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you were, and the, so those <laughs> things like they stick out. And so what's incredible again? Yeah. And you're absolutely right. What's incredible about it is like so what you guys stick to and what's also memorable is the movies, the music, the pop culture, uh, the news. All those things I can remember distinctly, you know, I think we were talking a little bit before about the old lime green starburst in the seventies and then nobody yeah. remembers it. And I'm like, Oh, they had them. <laughs> I remember going to see empire. No, it was return of the Jedi. So by 83 in return of the Jedi going to get to the movie theater when I used to go to by myself, cause you could at seven get dropped off, watch the movie, go put a diamond mom. Can you come pick me up? I'm at the mall and you'd be safe. <laughs> So she dropped me off at the theater and I remember watching Return of the Jedi and going, wow, they have the yellow Starburst and the white Starburst. No, I want the original one with the green in it. And that's the last time I ever had a green Starburst ever. Wow. Like from that the original wild. packaging anyway, which also a little bit of trivia comes from what was originally called opal chewy fruits from England. That's what Starburst come from. They were originally called opal. Really? Opal. If you're into that food stuff, you should check out the show. Uh, we've had him on the show before, Josh McCuga. From uh, eating history on the History Channel. Oh, Bucky, there's some yeah, great stuff brilliant on there. show, dude. It's brilliant, amazing. Show. It's amazing, and they eat the shit that they find from like yeah. 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, they're they're insane. braver than me. Like whenever I used to watch Fear Factor, because my friend was actually the editor on that. I'd be like, I could do any of this, but I'd never fail because the second round is all the eating stuff. Yep. I can't do the second round. Like bull balls, I'm not eating that. I'm not no. eating those. Goat eyes, <laughs> not eating them. Not eating them. You know, I'll do the crazy. Yeah. 
I won't even eat bologna. So you think I'm going to go <laughs> to Bulldogs? It's that's the thing. It's like I there's so many. I don't eat snails. I don't eat frog legs. And when I had them, I was literally like Tom Hanks and Big, where you're like. <laughs> <laughs> just let it drop out don't spit it because it's going to get into your saliva you're just like, ah, ah. yeah and that's how that stuff and i've been like that i'm like embarrassed about it you know i did that i was in world tour i can't believe i'm gonna say it's a world tour for independence day i'm sitting with roland dean roland emmerich dean devlin like bill pullman it's like this french restaurant like all these like super fancy we're like being looked at because independence day is huge and they bring out the <laughs> come on jimmy just try it i'm like i don't want to put that kind of stuff in my mouth and they got offended that i said that so like i mean Ooh, yeah uh... i didn't mean to... <laughs> <laughs> then they laughed their ass off at me. That's great. dude what was it like i don't want to keep you too much longer but like what was it like working with uh, you talked about all these other guys what about randy quaid who played your he dad? was awesome man he was awesome. He was Dude. he was the opposite of what you see. He's very soft spoken. He was. I mean, this is yeah. 1995. Right, right, right. But he was very soft spoken. Yeah. He was very also very kind and very generous. If you had if you wanted to talk to me, he had the time for you. You know, I asked him a couple pieces of advice and he was really kind of matter of factly like, you know, giving about it. Like he's like, I'm like, you know, when you did the big picture and then you know, you did the last detail, you know, with Otis Young and, and Jack Nicholson and like you're so young and that, that that's just a groundbreaking performance you know I mean I don't know if you remember the last detail but he's yeah. like this kleptomaniac who can't stop stealing stuff and the whole reason he's being taken by them is because he's been stealing stuff and then within their walking by just all they're like put that back he was great you know and so he also in his earlier career he was much more dramatic you know he wasn't so over the top so he knows how to do both kinds of acting you know he can be a dramatic actor and an extremely over the top comedic actor so that being said, he's nothing like those over-the-top characters when I knew him. Needless to say, when the, you know, and I still do love Randy, but needless to say, when those videos came out and have been playing and have come out, I don't, yeah. I don't know Randy like that. I don't know that Randy. Right. That's when I go, okay, I haven't spoken to him in over 20 years, so I don't, so much has yeah. changed. But, you know, I, I know for a long time, it's like I never thought he was crazy. Yes, I mean sometimes like I watch those videos and I just that makes me think something happened still. in between then and now, or it makes me also yeah. question if he's yeah. still just putting on an act. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a I, piece he's so good me, at it. There's a piece of me that wonders if any of that is real. He's good at it. I mean, he's done everything in his career, so like he can pull it off. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, don't take our word for it. We don't know. We're just waxing <laughs> on the idea of what crazy I like in real life because none of us actually know. <laughs> right. God, I would love to get him on here. Be hilarious. But I did. He's he was a cool guy and he was funny. You know, he told me he read a lot of yeah. Neil Simon, which I thought was really funny because <laughs> Neil yeah. Simon stuff is really talky. Uh, <laughs> He also told me that the best advice I was ever, some of the best advice I was ever given was given by him. He said, kid, take whatever they give you and work as much as you can. Don't sit there waiting for that one role because you'll wait your whole life. But if you take what comes your way, you might get something better than that role that you were waiting for. Either way, at the end of the day, I'm an actor. I'm not there to do things necessarily because I love it. I'm there to make do a job so people believe it and he was so practical with me about that which is why it was so hard for me to believe that that over-the-top character is anything serious 
because it's not how he ever communicated with me i don't know i don't know him <laughs> I, can only, I can only go off what i see and what i think you know good mark you can close it out i know you're all right james thanks a lot again for being the judge for this episode did a great job man and i'm not just saying that because i won so <laughs> <laughs> it's contested all right duelers yeah. well if you've missed an episode you can always head back to duelingdecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on itunes on spotify everywhere podcasts are available and while you're on the interwebs head on over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades where you can join our private group share some of your very own retro memories so until next time duelers we're gonna bid you a peace love light and a joy have a grateful week everyone podcast new york, podcast new york. be heard